0: Well, if you would please turn to Mark chapter 3. We're we'll get into our message this morning. Mark chapter 3, and we're going to sort of start a new series. We're going to do two weeks in it, and then we're going to take a long break, and then we'll get back to it again next year. But we're starting things out. And the, the idea of this series, of the title that I've titled this series is God on the Move. And part of it is because Jesus is moving all around, right? He's going from place to place to place. That's part of it. Second thing is he's doing things. He's doing a lot of things. And he tells these parables in Mark chapter 4, and that's what the picture kind of gets us to, of, of God working, God moving, God doing things, sometimes in a way that's sudden and surprising and obvious to everybody in public, and sometimes in a way that is not public, that is under the surface, where you don't see what God is doing for a long time, but we can have faith and trust that inevitably God is moving. Sometimes he works with people, and we'll see how he he sends out his disciples, right? He sends his disciples on a mission. And sometimes in one parable it seems he just works kind of without human intervention at all. He's just working in somebody's life by his spirit. Humans have nothing to do We're awake, we're asleep, it doesn't matter. God's doing something. And so whatever it is, God is on the move. God is clearly on the move in the Gospels. Jesus is going around. He's, he's bringing the presence and the fullness of the life-giving kingdom in the world. But God is still at move today, on the move. He's still at work today. And, and he's working, right? I, I believe, I'm, I'm confident that his presence, as we're gathered in his name this morning, that his presence is here with us today. And so our first task is to recognize that presence and then to say, how is God moving in our lives, in our church, and then what are we going to do with that? How are we going to respond? What is our faith response to God's movement and action in our lives? That's the question I want us to hold in our minds today as we look at the gospel, at the gospel of love. Let's take a minute and just pray and ask for God's blessing. God, we need your blessing this morning because apart from the Spirit, we would be blind your word. We would be blind to your action. We would be blind and deaf to what you're doing. And so, God, we need your spirit. We need your presence to open our eyes, open our ears of faith that we can hear, we can understand, and we can see. See with clarity, see with understanding, and see how you are moving. Help us to understand your word, understand Mark's reason for writing this and how then it might impact or affect our lives. Thank you for your incredible grace that you have shown to us. That because you have died for us on the cross, we do have an opportunity to see and to understand and to hear and respond. And rejoice in all that you're doing. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this takes place in this series, this, uh, this, not the this series, but this, this passage that we're going to cover, which is going to go from verse 7 to the end of chapter 3 takes place in three scenes, and each scene is at a different place. So we first find ourselves at at the lake. Let's read verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Okay? So it starts out, Jesus is going to this He's withdrawing with his disciples. He's trying to, in a sort of sense, get away a little bit. It's not going to work, right? He's withdrawing with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd is coming. So in in the first couple chapters of Mark, we see these miracles that Jesus is doing, and people are really excited, and and we've got these big crowds that are following Jesus. They hear about him from all over, and so they, they come from all these surrounding regions, all right? And then it says, because of the crowds... He told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. So, these crowds are actually posing a threat to Jesus, to his personal safety, that he needs to get a boat and push out into the water a little bit, because if he doesn't, he's got all these people that are crowding him, that they're going to pose a threat to him. They're going to cause physical danger to him and his disciples. So he's got to get out in the boat because these people have in their minds, they say, if we can just touch him, if we can just touch him, then we'll be healed. Now part of this kind of comes out of a pagan understanding of what's going on. They sort of imagine him as this, um, they have a misunderstanding, I think, of Jesus, right? They're all mixed up in their understanding of who Jesus is and what his mission But they think, you know, if we can just touch this man, they they don't really know that much about him, but they at least know that he is a person of power who brings healing to people. So if we can just touch him, we'll be healed. So they don't totally understand, and they pose a threat, but to his safety anyway, but Jesus makes a way. He accommodates them, right? It goes on to say, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders, not to tell others about him. So, Jesus at the lake, he's healing people. He's, he's delivering people from their sickness and illness, and then he's also delivering them from these evil, impure spirits. And we've seen several stories of this already of him healing people of impure spirits. But it was at this time where this demonic activity was strong and prevalent within this culture. And so, these people come to him, they've got these impure spirits that are, that are residing within a spiritual, supernatural way, scary, scary stuff. And there's, these people come to him and they, they come into Jesus' presence, and these spirits, they freak out and they start shouting, they, you're, you're the Son of God. Now, we might ask, why are they saying this? The people who don't really understand who Jesus is, they're coming to Jesus and Jesus is healing them. But the demons who are coming to Jesus, or who are, who are being brought to Jesus, they know who he is and they're saying who he is, and Jesus wants to quiet them. We talked about this a little bit back, but just to remind you, the reason why they're doing this is because they, they had this idea that if they could just identify Jesus by name, that it would somehow prove mastery over him. And so by Jesus silencing them, he's proving his mastery over them. That, right, he's, he's demonstrating, in other words, in this circumstance, that he has power over everything in the spiritual realm. There, there's nothing in the spiritual realm that stands close to the power of Jesus. He's got this covered. Okay? So that's what Jesus is doing, and and he's silencing them. He's saying, "Stop it! I'm in charge of you. You don't get to talk." Now, part of it, I think, is that Jesus. We see in Jesus' ministry, especially in Mark, is that Jesus' ministry needs to go through a progression. It's it's almost veiled a little bit at the beginning, and Jesus will tell somebody that's been healed, "Don't tell anybody yet. Hold on." And we might think, you know, we talk about the gospel conversation tree. We're excited. We we want to go tell people about Jesus. There's a strong command. That's what we're supposed to do. So why is Jesus at the beginning of his ministry saying, "Hold on, not yet"? And I think it's because it's it's building up, right? Jesus was not primarily there to get big crowds. He was not even on this earth primarily to heal or to cast out demons. But but his healing and his casting out demons were were signs. They were pointers to his identity, and that identity we see fulfilled on the cross. So Jesus has a mission. He's got a purpose. He's moving towards that purpose. And actually, at the beginning, the crowds are almost a hindrance to it. Although, even though that's the case, he is nevertheless still healing, still blessing them. He's, he's, what's he doing? I think he's, he's inviting people in, see who I am. See my identity as the Son of God. All right? So that's our first story, is that Jesus at the lake. The second one is, now we move to the next scene, Jesus on the mountainside. Jesus on the mountainside, verse 13 Jesus went up to the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. The first thing I want us to point out is Mark's and Jesus's symbolism here. Jesus is is doing a symbolic act. He's going up on a mountain, up on a mountainside, and he's calling to him twelve disciples. And what this would bring to mind to the early audience is Moses up on the mountain with the 12 tribes of Israel gathered around him, right? And so Jesus is, is he's setting himself up as the new leader of a new kind of people. And we're going to see what, are those, what is this new kind of people that Jesus is drawing to himself, that Jesus is bringing in near. But for now, let's just see that the 12 disciples, I think, are supposed to be symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he calls them, and notice what it says. It says, he appointed the twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. So he is, he is drawing them to be with him, he is drawing them near, so that he can send them out to preach, right? it's part of his mission, preach the gospel, the same thing he's been preaching, and then to have authority To cast out demons, do the same kind of authority that He's got. He is giving them for a particular task. I want us to see those three things, right? The the drawing near, that we're with Him, the sending out, that God gives us, Jesus gives an activity, a mission, and then the fact that He gives us an authority to do that mission. And what I really want us to see right now is the sequence of those things. That first and foremost, Jesus is calling his disciples to be with him. That is what is fundamental. That is what is foundational to the disciples' mission out. It's fundamental to their activity. It's fundamental to the authority that they then receive. And I think that's true for us as well. We must first, as a church, as individuals, we need to be with Jesus. We need to be drawn into a relationship with him. We need to be empowered by his presence by the Spirit, before we then think that we are going to go out with his activity and his authority in the world. If we disconnect those things, or if we get the sequence wrong, we might even see on the human surface level big success, or, or, or what we would perceive as, as fruit from the gospel. But that's not the kind of people that God is calling. Our mission is not primary our mission is a natural response, but it's a natural response to first our relationship with God in Jesus. That's where we need to always start. And it's only out of that foundation, out of that reality, then that we're then called to go out and to spread the gospel, to preach the gospel and have the authority to do the things that God wants us to do. Now, well, this is sort of a this little section here in Mark is a is a pointer forward to Mark chapter 6. So we're going to expand a little bit more on, on, on the disciples' mission. But for now, I just want us to see what's involved and the sequence of events. Now it says in verse, uh, we see the next verse here, it says, These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. For they gave him, uh, for them he gave the name Boanerges, or something like that. Colby, I don't know if I'm saying it right. All right. I just assume you've got it. All right, which means Sons of Thunder, which is, by the way, that's awesome, right? Isn't that so cool? I want to be the Sons of Thunder. I imagine these guys in biker uniforms for some reason. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. It'd be, it'd be a lot of fun to dig into those names. It's inter- there's really interesting dynamics about what's going on with some of these folks. On the one end, we've got, uh, we got Matthew, right, who is a tax collector, tax collector for the Roman government. And on the other hand, we've got Simon the Zealot, who the Zealots were radically and even violently opposed to the Roman government. And yet Jesus brings them together right, in a new community in a new way of life. So that's really cool. And then it ends with this Judas Iscariot who would betray him. Again, another foreshadowing. Even within the twelve, that Jesus has called to himself, there is one who will be a betrayer. The third place we go to here is the house. The house. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So again, the crowds are coming, and again the crowds are a hindrance to Jesus. Before, he was worried that they would crowd him out, right? They'd get too much in his face, right? And now, they're not even letting him eat. He can't even have a meal. So his family, they heard about this. They went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. So his own family, his own family says, he's out of his mind. I, this, I, I, he's crazy. There's something wrong here. What a thing to hear from your own family. And we're going we're gonna to get to, his family's going to come back up in, again, right? But there's this little, Mark inserts another story in here first. He says, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So these are, these are leaders from Jerusalem. They are probably sent down, they hear about his ministry, they're sent down to test him out, see what's going on. And so they say, we see his power, we see that he's casting out demons. We see that he's healing people. They can't deny those things. And so, what do they do? They attribute the power by which he does those things to Beelzebub. He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, by Satan himself. He is driving out demons. That's what they're saying. So, Jesus called them over to him and began to teach. Uh, he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided itself against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So, so Jesus' first argument against the Pharisees' accusation is essentially this. Essentially, he says, your accusation, your charge is just illogical. If you follow it to its conclusion, it just doesn't make any sense. How could I be, by Satan's power, casting out demons? It would be self-destructive. Think about a kingdom. If you've got a kingdom and it's at civil war, it can't stand. It's not going to survive. This is Abraham Lincoln uh, had this speech where he, he talks about the, he quotes this passage, a kingdom divided itself cannot stand. Right? He's trying to hold the union of the United States together Right? as he's become president, we understand this. Or if it's a house, if you've got people in a household and they're divided against each other, can they stand? No. Or in a church setting, right? If there's division in a church and there's big division there, can it stand? No, right? Because if it's, if there's one unit that is not unified, it can't stand. And so Jesus says, your argument is just illogical. If I were by the power of Satan casting out demons, it would mean that his his kingdom is divided and it's going to come to an end. So his first argument is simply this. No, as can't be case, it's illogical. And then he says this story. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. What's he just talking about here, right? Remember, he says he's speaking in parables, so he's giving a word picture of somebody breaking into a strong man's house, wants to steal from that house, he plunders it, right? He ties him up, plunders it. Now who's going to do that? Who are the characters in this story? I think that the the strong man, I think that's, that's Satan, right? And who's entering into the strong man's house? I think that's Jesus. And what's the plundering? It's all that Jesus is doing to mess with Satan's house as he's got these demonic powers. So Jesus is saying, I am coming in here. So th- he said, if Satan's kingdom was divided against itself, it couldn't stand. But now he's saying, and Satan's kingdom is not going to stand. But the reason why is because someone more powerful than Satan is here right? You, you, somebody else needs to come in. Jesus is saying, I am coming in, and I am disarming the powers of Satan right now. I, I love what Jesus says in, um, or not what Jesus says, what Paul says in Colossians 2.15. It says this, it says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So in Jesus' ministry, as he's casting out demons, he's showing his power over Satan and over the demonic realm. But on the cross, it's actually on the cross that Jesus wins a decisive victory. Now Paul's uh, verbiage here in Colossians is so ironic because what did Satan hope to accomplish by the cross? What did the human rulers and authorities hope to accomplish by the cross? They hoped to make a public spectacle a public shaming of Jesus on that cross, to say he claimed to be the Son of God, he claimed that he could save others, and he can't even save himself. It even says in Hebrews that Jesus went to the cross despising the shame, as Jesus was hanging there naked and, and, and in a shameful way on the cross before these big crowds to see to hurl insults at him. What a public shaming of Jesus that looks like from a human perspective. And Jesus is saying, and Paul, Paul is saying, That no, actually, that what Jesus was doing there was he was disarming the powers and authorities, and he was making a public spectacle of them. He was actually victorious over the demonic realm, over Satan on the cross. He was taking away Satan's power to ever accuse us of doing wrong by taking all of our guilt on himself. Isn't that awesome? Man, if you worry, you know, can God turn around something bad for good? That, that's it right there. He took what was supposed to be a public shaming of Jesus to a public shaming of his enemies, to so the powers and authorities. That's awesome. God can turn anything around. He can use any evil for good. It's amazing. Truly I tell you then, he says this. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. This is, now remember, this is the context. So this is his third sort of response to the utterance at the beginning that he is doing his work by beelzebub. So it fits within this context here. This passage is one that a lot of people stumble over. They misunderstand it. I've had a, few, no, a number of people come to me, and they're worried. And they say, I, I don't know, Pastor. Have I committed the unforgivable sin?" Have I, am I beyond hope? Is this me? Was, was it me? That, am I beyond the hope of forgiveness because of what Jesus has said here? Because I have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And people stumble over this passage. But I think that we can, we can get more clarity on this by seeing it in context. right? And Jesus gives us the context. right? Why did he say this? He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So Jesus' statement is a specific response to what the Pharisees are saying. Now, I said earlier that Jesus' identity and mission is, is veiled throughout his ministry, and there is this slow unveiling of who he is. And so, to some degree, if people misunderstand Jesus, a lot of people do, everybody really does to some degree, even the disciples do for the longest time, that's part of the process, I think, that Jesus is drawing people in, right? So it's not that the Pharisees just misunderstood Jesus. It's that they were coming with a direct attack on him. They were saying, it is not by the Holy Spirit that you are doing these things. It is by, this, it is by Satan's spirit. And in doing it, they were, they were blaspheming the spirit because they were equating the Holy Spirit with the, power, with the spirit of Satan. With an unclean spirit. You see what they were doing there? So this is a, this is a direct attack on Jesus' identity. And a direct attack on the spirit by which he is doing his work. This is not a careless... This is not, I don't know what's going on. This is not, I don't have evidence to see. This is, they see everything clearly, and they are trying to find a way to shut him down, right? So some people it might, it might carelessly say a word. Could that be it? No. I think that there's two kind of good ways to understand this. First of all, maybe this is just a historically unique setting. It's a historically unique setting, right? This is specifically for the Pharisees who were opposing Jesus, they opposed Jesus, and, and that's, right, it's for them, right? And so there's not really a strong application for us now, right? Or I think we could maybe look at another way, and that is, if there is a persistent, continual approach towards Jesus, as that he is doing his work by the power of Satan, and in doing so, dishonoring the Spirit, then what is that? That is a lack of faith and how are we saved we're saved by faith right by grace through faith okay so if you are persistently opposed to jesus you're not going to be forgiven we have to respond to do this in faith now i do just want to reassure right that god's love is unending right and his forgiveness is unending and so if you are and his cross was sufficient for everything right Far be it for us to ever diminish the cross and say, oh, that sin right there, that, one's, that one, he won't forgive that one. Right? That would, I think, be diminishing the power of the cross. Right? So it's, it's there, the power of the cross is there, and, it, and if you are sitting here going, I don't know, if, if, have, I, have I sinned in a way that God can't forgive me? I just want to say, he can. He does. He will, if we respond in faith. Right? I say that surely from the Gospels. The whole Scope of Scripture points us right towards that. And if the Spirit's working on your life, that's an indication that he is drawing you right now. And he's opening up the door. He's opening it wide. He's opening his arms wide. Come. Come, come, come. Okay, amen? All right. Now, let's get back to the family. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone to call him. So the mothers and brothers are still outside, right? the mother and brothers, right? they're still outside, they're calling him, and a crowd was sitting around. And they told him, hey, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So Jesus seems oblivious to that, to this, and the crowd's like, hey, you've got family here, better pay attention to your own family. And he says this, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, I think even in this culture that just seems kind of rude, right? Uh, If I'm I've got, next weekend I'm going to be out, I'm going to be at a, a pig roast, right, with my, with my wife's side of the family and my brother's supposed to come and, and he doesn't really know anybody there, so if he comes to the pig roast and somebody's like, hey, your brother's here, and I'm like, who's my brother? I don't know if Jesus, I don't think Jesus said it like that. But right, if I said it like that, you'd be like, hey, who's your brother? Your brother's your flesh and blood, man. Come on, you've got a loyalty to him. Go, go talk to him. Go introduce, you know. But in that culture, it's even more, the the family unit was even more central, even more critical, the extended family unit. So uh, Jesus is saying these things in a way that to the culture would seem rude. I don't think Jesus was being rude, right? But I think he maybe was being rhetorical a little bit to get people's attention, okay? So he says, who are my mother and brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. Who are those? Those Those are his disciples, Those are those who are close to following him, right? Those are probably the women that are with the disciples that follow him on his ministry. He says this, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So in doing this, Jesus is, he's saying, who are my people? Who are those who are closest to me? Who are those who who are my mothers and my brothers? brothers and my sisters. They are my followers. They are the ones who do the will of God who is in heaven. That's who it is, right? In a sense, he's relativizing the biological family, but I don't think he's doing it in a way that diminishes it. I think he's expanding our idea of the family relationship. If I understand this right, the dividing line for God's people is not biological. It's faith. That's what Moses says. It's it's not all of Israel is Israel. It's not just those born of Abraham. Right? It's those who have the same faith as Abraham that are God's people. Jesus is doing the same kind of thing here. And so I ought to view all of you. And I think we view one another who are, who are believers in Jesus as members, of one, as, as members of one family. Right? You guys are my mothers and sisters and brothers. And because of that, I think I, I ought to have a, a familial and a and a loyalty and an affection towards you all, right? A brotherly love. Okay? So, there's our story. What's Mark's point? We've got three different stories here, but I think these tie together a little bit. So what is Mark's point? Now, the first one is this, is that Jesus has authority to heal. He's got the authority to bring about the goodness of the kingdom of God, and he's got the will to do it. This is central. And we take this for granted, but I don't want to leave it unsaid, because the Gospels are about Jesus, Okay? Let's not ever go away from that. Secondly, God's people are defined by their connection to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I don't know if you notice this, but there's a Trinitarian aspect to this, right? By their connection to the Father, right? Jesus says, who is my mother and brothers? It is those who do the will of God. So in Jesus' context, that's the Father, right? He's referring to the Father of of the Trinity, right? And then to the Son, who were his disciples? It was those who he called to be with him in his presence. And then to the Spirit, right? Well, are we going to honor the Spirit in honoring Jesus? Or are we going to dishonor the Spirit by saying it's by some other power that Jesus is doing these work? That's what is defining the people of God here. And then third, that those, those people of God, right, they are to receive and extend Jesus' authority. They receive and extend Jesus' authority. Now, now, does that mean we say, oh, Jesus is in charge, I'm in charge, right? I get to tell everybody what to do. That's a complete misunderstanding of Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority, he comes as a servant, as a servant to all, right? The Son of Man came not not to be served, but to serve, right? And so our authority is one of, of service, but it's an authority because it's, it's effective. It, it actually makes a difference in the world by God's grace. It's not our authority, and it's not authority to lord it over people, but it is Jesus' authority, and it's Jesus' authority to do the good deeds he has called us to do to bring about good in the world. So, uh, just to kind of, I, I read this really interesting quote, which I think summarizes some of this really well. It says that the church, right? This is Eugene Peterson. He's a pastor. He, he died a few years ago. But here's how he defined the church. He said, the church is a colony of heaven in the country of death. And I think actually the quote, I think I wrote it wrong up there. I think he actually said, a colony of life in the country of death. Do we, And He's not talking about the United States. He's talking about our world when he says country. Do we live in a world of death? Yes. The news told us that this morning. Okay? But the church is supposed to be a colony of life, an inbreaking of the kingdom of God, a colony of heaven. That fits, right? A strategy of the Holy Spirit for giving witness to the already inaugurated kingdom of God. That's who Jesus was calling his disciples to be. In the world of death, in the country of death that they resided. God was calling them in to be a witness that Jesus' power had already come and it was active in the world. And his come is right here. It's right now. It's active in the world. And we get to be uh, this, this little outpost, a light in the darkness, shining that out. So where are you? I talked about the three places. Maybe you're at the lake and you're, you're one of those people who's coming to Jesus. You, you don't really know a whole lot about Jesus necessarily, but you know that he's powerful and you know he can do great things. If that's you, this is an invitation to dig deeper, to learn more, to move past the surface understanding, to understand Jesus more fully. Or you're at the mountainside. You've come to Jesus. He's called you to himself, right? And now he is, he is sending you out. And for you, I think this is a call to be with Jesus, right? Put in practices in place that bring you into an understanding of his presence, of his word, of his will, through prayer and scripture. And then from that foundation move out with the authority that he gives or in the house the house was a place of conflict and maybe you're hearing you're conflicted about who Jesus is you're not really sure and there's a war there's a battle is is Jesus crazy is he a liar is he some evil power even or is he the son of god and and if you're in that place of conflict this is a call to you for faith so that Jesus is is working he is he is the son of god and he's calling you to himself by the cross so wherever you are maybe it's to dig deeper maybe it's uh maybe it's you got to get out on mission maybe it's you got to decide right now wherever you are god is moving god is working and the question is how will we respond to his movement and work in our lives let's pray father god we we do need you to come and to work and to move in our midst Right now, today, and if there is anyone who is conflicted about who Jesus is, I pray that you will make it clear that he is the Savior of the world, that he has come to forgive their sins, he has come to make them a whole. And I pray that you will give them eyes and ears again to see and to respond in faith, to acknowledge their sin, and to find forgiveness and life in you. We need you, we need you, we need you. Thank you that you are a gracious God who gives what we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for our final song. Well, thank you for coming this morning and joining in our family worship this morning and uh, taking communion together and hearing the word of God and singing together. You're all my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, so I thank God for you. So thanks for coming. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship. We hope and pray that it strengthened your faith and pointed you to Jesus. We want you to know, too, that we grow in our faith not just through listening to sermons, but by becoming part of a local church. If you're not part of a local church, we pray that you'll visit one soon. And if you're in the Grand Rapids or Wyoming area, we want to invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 930 for worship. May God bless you.